0: we've been talking together over the last several weeks under the title of What's That? And it comes from, that phrase, what's that, comes from the people of Israel's response, our, our forefathers and foremothers in the, faith, in the faith, when they went out into the wilderness and they ran out of food, and God gave them this miraculous food called manna, they replied, what's that? Or in Hebrew, they responded, "Mana," which is, means what's that in Hebrew. So, God saved them with what's that? And what we've been looking at over the last number of weeks is the way that if we really are going to receive from the Lord what he wants to give to us and step into the life that the Lord has for us, we need to be able to receive that in ways that are unfamiliar and unexpected. You know, a lot of us, um, you know, we, we like to have a map. I was just talking to Joy Moore, after the first service, and she was, she was talking about that. So she's, a, she's trained as an RN. Her life is very structured, very together, but she's finally in a place in her life where she had to move beyond where the map goes. And she knows she's in the right place, and she is completely freaking out and completely okay at the same time, because that is, that is where we meet God, is when we move to the edges of the map, where it's unfamiliar and unexpected. And what we want to talk about today is the fact that God wants to meet us sometimes even beyond the white part of the map, completely outside of the frame, to not just do what's unexpected or um, unfamiliar to us, but to do what doesn't even seem possible, to do what's actually impossible. And at a deep level, we want that. You know, we want God the God of the Red Sea, and the God of the resurrection to do big things in our lives. And you'll hear people that even use phrases like this. You may have seen this along the way, that, you know, expect your miracle. He is a God of miracles, and he is still doing miracles today. And I totally believe that. I totally believe that God is doing miracles, that he is doing the impossible right now. And that is scratching an itch that we have. We have this sense. We look at how life is, and we see how overmatched we are. We look at the way that our best efforts don't quite seem to get there. We look at the way that people just seem stuck in pain. They just seem stuck in bad directions. And you just, we intuitively know that we want God to come in and just break through that, to work in a way that we can only Describe as miraculous or impossible, and so because of that, we tend to cherish stories. Like here, let me tell you a story that that Christians love to tell. Um, it's about NASA scientists that took place in the early days of the space um, movement or space movement, the space program, where we were trying to send people to the moon, which I believe we actually did. I don't think that was a big scam they pulled off in a in a uh, soundstage in Nevada or something like that. But you you may have heard this story. So since they were going to send a person to the moon, it was, like, really important that they actually be able to calculate to a very narrow tolerance where the moon was going to be and where the earth was going to be at this time. And since the timing had to be absolutely right, they had to be able to, to count both time and space, very, very accurately. But as they kept doing this, they kept coming off like about an hour off. And the scientists would scratch their heads. They would review the tapes from the computers. You know, they got out their slide rules. They had computers that were the size of this room that actually had less computing power than my phone does at this point. Smartphones are just amazing. I'm not going to check my Facebook Sorry. (laughs) The phone out, and that's what I do. Anyway, um, but they checked and they double checked and they double checked, and they couldn't figure it out. First, they 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 had individuals work on it, the really smart guys, and then they had teams of people working on it, and they couldn't figure it out. They kept coming up an hour short, and then finally, one guy in the group, you know, he wasn't quite as sophisticated as the other scientists. He's that's represented by the suspenders that he's wearing in this photograph. he remembered something from Sunday school. And he says, no, no, I, I know this is science and I, I'm not, you know, I don't have the fancy backgrounds that you guys have and everything. But I, I remember a story from Sunday school about a time, and, and this might be the answer. And, and I think if we would just look in God's Word, we might find the answer here. And this is where Christians, when they tell the story, get really excited because we want to believe that there are answers in the Bible. We want to believe that." in the midst of all the confusion and trouble in this world, that there is a word that we can rely on. And so this kind of story is really powerful to to know that God is at work, not just in big miracles, but in the routine way as well, that he can give us direction in this life. And so in this story, the guy says, yeah, take a look at Joshua chapter 10. Now, for those of you who don't have the Bible memorized, Joshua chapter 10 is a time when the people of Israel are invading Canaan, and they're struggling. They're fighting with the, the inhabitants of the land. They're fighting. I th- I think it's the Amalekites. Um, it might be another It group, like the the Jebusites or Canaanites or something like. That. All the people that lived there had It at the end of their name, um, and so they're fighting one of the It groups. And the battle's going okay, but the sun is starting to go down. And if the sun sets, they're they're not going to win. They're not going to lose the battle. So they pray to the Lord, and the sun stands still for an hour. So what that means is there was one time in human history where we lost an hour. And so they put this hour into their calculations, and everything worked. It all worked out. And people... You know, it's like, isn't God great? Isn't this cool? Isn't this great that that the smartest scientists of NASA who think they know all of this stuff compared to God's Word, they can't quite get there, right? So, this is a great story. It affirms that God is powerful, it affirms that God's Word is true, it affirms a whole lot of great things. The only problem with it, though, is that it never happened. The story's not true. There was never a NASA thing. I mean, the thing in Joshua is in Joshua, but this NASA story never happened. And and here's the thing. If you're around the Christian community for a while, you will run into these kinds of stories. They'll get forwarded to you on, on email. They'll show up on people's Facebook. Isn't this a sign of God's greatness? That there is something about us. And my point in telling this story is the reason we hold on to these stories Or about the one with the floating chalk that showed up the annoying philosophy professor. The reason we hold on to these stories is we look at how broken the world is. We look at how broken we are, and we want to believe deeply that God works in our world today. We want to believe deeply that God does impossible things, that God works miraculously in our world. And what I want to suggest is that desire is entirely a good thing because I really believe that God really does work in those kinds of ways. But to pick up one of the themes from last week, we are far too easily pleased that what we miss is the real frequent way that God works miraculously. We are so caught up in looking for something that is flashy, that's looking for something that matches our version of what's amazing and what we think a miracle looks like. It has a lot of flash. It has a lot of amazing stuff. That we end up missing the kind of miraculous work that God is completely committed to do, that all of us get to do. You know, one place where we look a lot is, is for healing. You know, people, our bodies are broken, and so we are, people deal with chronic, very difficult issues. I mean, just looking out here, I, I know a number of them. Um, there's somebody in my close family circle that has a, a chronic issue, and I, I pray for that person's healing every day. But, you know, even if healings happened, You know, like, think of of the biggest healing that Jesus ever did. Jesus healed all kinds of people, people that were paralyzed, a woman who was bleeding for years. But the biggest one that he ever did was when he healed Lazarus because Lazarus was dead, right? And he brought him back to life. But even that, Lazarus went on and lived the rest of his natural life and then died. And every person that has been healed by God's power still went on to die. And so what I want to suggest is, is that what he wants to give us is something that is even greater than physical healing. You know, physical healing lies into what uh, Second Corinthians calls our light and momentary troubles that compared to the glory that God wants to build into each of our lives, even that kind of stuff is light and momentary. So here is what Real, a real Oops Ta-da. Here's what a real miracle looks like Because this miracle connects us to eternity Even a physical healing is only for a little while but this is eternal. This is a verse we looked at a couple weeks ago, and it's one that I, I always come back to because I think this, this gets a lot of the good news in just a small amount of space. But here in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is trying to sum up just what it is that God is trying to do in this world right now with the people he was talking to and to us. And not just to a select few, not just to a few elite or a few lucky or, or something like that, But this is something that is in the range of every person who is willing to open their lives to God. He says this, he says, look, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. New creations are not possible things in the world that we live in. You know, you buy something, it's new, and what happens? It eventually wears out, and it wears out, and it wears out, and it goes away. And then you, you can replace it, you can, fi- you can work on it, but eventually things wear out. They don't regenerate. That happens to us, too. We're born, we live, we get older, and we reach the end of our lives. The idea that there can actually be a new creation in this world... I want to suggest to you, is absolutely a miraculous thing. It is impossible. It works outside the normal channels that we see. And yet, I want to say, say to you today that that kind of miracle is absolutely possible for every person seated today. And I know enough of your stories to know that a lot of you guys have already experienced this kind of miraculous power in your life. And so, really what I want to say Is that you can expect your miracle, that God does do impossible things. And the most impossible thing that God does is that He changes us. And that real change is absolutely possible. Now, here's what's really great there is an actual illustration of this profound change that is in every Bible that has ever been printed. Well, if it's a real Bible that includes the Old Testament, sometimes people walk around with just New Testaments, and that's not really a Bible. I was an Old Testament scholar for 15 years, so I'm rather committed to the idea that it's not a real Bible unless you have the Old Testament as well. But if you you have a paper, you know, a dead tree Bible with you, or you want to look it up on your device, go ahead and look at Exodus 7. Go ahead and look at Exodus 7 because you will find in Exodus 7 an illustration of one of the most miraculous transformations that we will ever see. It happens in the life of Moses. And if you don't have one, I have a slide prepared and it'll come up on the screen right here. This is what it looks like. Do you see that? That is a picture of one of the most profound transformations miraculous, unpossible transformations that you will ever see in the Bible. Now that's a close-up, so it's a little hard to see. I'll, I'll back out a little bit and show it to you what it looks like along the way. Um, where it is, is this space right here. That is Moses becoming a new creation. That is Moses, that is the old going away and the new coming. He is this kind of guy up here, and he's another kind of guy down here. He is a different person from one verse to the next. And here's what I find is really fascinating about this, is this truly is one of the most profound transformations that we can read about anywhere in the Bible. And there are no angels singing, there's no visions, there's no explosions, not even a smoke machine. Not, not even a smoke machine. John's like, <laughs> I have a smoke machine. <laughs> None of that. None of that is there. But he is profoundly changed. So let me back up and, and, and let you know a little bit more about his story to see why this is, this is it. Because what God wants to do in our lives, again, is not the flashy, not the extraordinary, not the ones that you could say, Wow, isn't God amazing? But God wants to build eternal values and eternal changes into our lives that will last for eternity, where we can say, I was once like this, and I am now like that. And that is one of the most profound miracles that you can imagine. So if you know Moses' story, because you've read the Bible or you've seen Prince of Egypt or, or something like that, you know, he was he was an Israelite, and the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians in Egypt. He's born; his mom doesn't want him killed. The, the Egyptians were doing a pogrom against um, Hebrew boys, so his mom puts him in the river. Um, he's rescued. He grows up in Pharaoh's household, and he still has an identity as he knows he's an Israelite because his mom was his nursemaid. So he knows he's an Israelite, but he's grown up. He outwardly looks like an Egyptian, and he grows up among the Egyptian elites. And when he's a young adult, one day he looks and he sees an Egyptian abusing some Israelites. And he intercedes and ends up killing the Egyptian. And because he's killed an Egyptian, um, an Egyptian, he's now wanted for murder. And so he needs to split town. He blows out of there. He goes out into the wilderness. He meets um, a, a woman uh, who's from the Midianites, marries her, and they have kids together and his whole previous life is gone. And and as we pick up the story in chapter 3, Moses is now an old man, and he's tending sheep for his father-in-law, which is not a particularly prestigious um, thing. And while he's tending sheep for his father-in-law, the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, appears to Moses in a burning bush. It's burning, but it, it doesn't burn up. And this voice comes out of it and basically tells Moses, look, my people Israel in Egypt, I've, I've seen their suffering, I've heard their cries, and I'm going to save them. And I want you, Moses, to be the guy that will do it with me. Now, this is really hard because really what the Lord is asking Moses to do is to go back to Egypt where he had once failed and do it again. And I've done a few hard things in my life, but... For me, one of the hardest things I've ever done um, is to have to go back into places where I'd failed previously and try again. It's so much easier to just keep moving on. And so because of that, you you might imagine, and if you know the story, Moses is not having it. And most of the dialogue in Exodus 3 and 4 is the Lord saying, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be great. I'm going to be with you. And Moses is reluctant he has serious doubts about himself, and he has serious doubts about the Lord as well. He doesn't know if the Lord can pull it off. He's pretty sure that he can't pull it off. And so in the end, Moses says to the Lord, he says, look, pardon me, um, but Lord, but could you just please send somebody else? It's like, I I just don't want to do this, okay? And that's the only time in the story where the Lord gets unhappy with Moses. And he basically says, look, we're just going to do this. Get going. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send Aaron to help you out. But it's happening, okay? So just go. And so he does. Moses loads up his family, and they go to Egypt. And he tells the Israelites what the Lord has told them. And he tells them, look, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of our ancestors, the Lord has appeared to me, and he has told me, that he has this incredible plan for you guys, that he has the desire and the power to strike the Egyptians, to set you free, and he's going to take all of us into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, which was in their definition like the best thing you could possibly imagine. And that's going to be our own place. We're no longer going to be slaves. We are going to be people in our own land. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. And the Israelites... This is like the best thing they've heard. They are totally for it. Moses, you are awesome. You are great. We are totally with you. Let's do this. Let's worship the Lord. And tomorrow we'll get out of here. So the next day, Moses with Aaron at his side goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, and he has a word for you, Pharaoh, and that is let my people go. You can't control them as slaves anymore. You've got to let them go. And suddenly the story grinds to a halt. At this point, Pharaoh doesn't go, oh, the Lord, okay. But Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should listen to him? I don't know the Lord. I don't even know you. So, no, you can't go. You guys are too economically important to us. I, I can't let the Israelites go. And moreover, if you guys have time to hang out and Listen to some person who calls himself the Lord and says, you've got to let me go. You obviously have too much time on your hands, and so I'm going to make your work that much harder. And so they were making bricks. Now you have to make twice as many bricks, and I'm going to make it harder for you along the way. So this did not go as planned. And so the Israelites really freak out. And the, their leaders come to Moses and they said, See, we told you this was a bad idea. Why did you do this? You've put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. We want nothing to do with you. We want nothing to do with the Lord. We are Pharaoh's people. We, we just want to be his people now. You can imagine how Moses feels at this point. He wasn't buying it to begin with. He thought this was a bad idea The whole way, and now the whole thing has blown up in his face. And so Moses responds and he goes to the Lord and he says to him, He says, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? And then he goes on in a couple other verses and just basically, You know, I told you this was a bad idea from the beginning. I knew I wasn't the right guy. I had my doubts about you. I was clearly right. You were clearly wrong, so I'm done here, okay? Now, what's amazing about this is what we might expect at the next moment is that where Moses was standing, there would be like a giant smoking hole in the ground where the Lord struck him. But the Lord didn't do that. And instead, in context, in the balance of chapter 6, what the Lord does is he doesn't even really respond to Moses. He just repeats the plan again. I've seen the suffering of my people. I've heard their cries. I'm going to get rid of the Egyptians. I'm going to use you as my guy. I'm going to take my people out, and I'm going to bring them into the land. And that's where we get to the end of it, is I'm going to bring the Israelites out of it, the it here being Egypt and their slavery along the way. And again, what we would expect at this point is for Moses to say, Lord, or whoever you are, I don't think you were listening. I just told you that this isn't working. And I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'm done with you. I know how the world works, and it's not working the way you told me. I did what you said. I went to Pharaoh. I told him what was up, and all it's done Is the people hate me now and they've got to work a whole lot more. So I don't want to do this anymore. And I thought I was clear. I'm sorry I have to be so blunt with you now, but I'm done. That's what we would expect at this point. But instead, what we got is the text says that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them, He didn't argue. He didn't shift. He didn't run away. He didn't call the Lord more names. He'd already called him some names. He just did it. Friends, that is change. Something happened with Moses between the previous chapter and this one. And I want to suggest that this is one of the most profound miracles that we see in the Bible. It's profound because he was completely going in this direction and suddenly went in this way. And there's no way to account for this other than by who God is and how it works. That Moses was a new man. That what the Moses that can listen to the Lord at this point is absolutely impossible. It's miraculous that he is this guy. You don't know this at the time when you're reading the story. If you're reading Exodus for the first time, it's just like, wow. For the first time, Moses just doesn't argue with the Lord. He just does what he says. But what you'll notice is that each time it gets rough from here on out, Moses does what the Lord says. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. And I I made this point before, but I want to bring you back to it. Notice the absence of theatrics. Notice that this is a big deal, and there are no angels singing. There are no smoke machines. There's no big story. He just changes. And friends, that's what change most often looks like. Sometimes people really do have big, stunning events in their lives, but most of the time, the change comes when we just very gradually trust God for the next step, and then the next step And the next step, we say, we give him permission. You can be at work here. And then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. I want to say today, that's what a miracle looks like most of the time. We just get better. We change. And that's something that is eternal. It's us changing into the person that God created us to be, and we'll spend eternity with him. And it's real, and it's accessible to all of us. Physical healing happens sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. I don't know why. Man, I wish I did. But I want to say that this kind of transformation, this kind of healing can happen to all of us all the time for eternity. Now, how did this happen? How did Moses become that new man, that new creation? Because he clearly is. From this point on, if you look at the story, there's another couple of episodes that are exactly like previous ones. Um, When they come to the Red Sea, and the sea's on this side, and Pharaoh's armies are on this side, what the Israelites say to Moses is almost identical to what they say to Moses in chapter 5. But what Moses says at that point is completely different because he is that new creation that God has transformed him. His whole understanding of how the world works is different at this point. So what's going on? That blank space... In Exodus 7 in our Bibles, doesn't explain what's going on. It's just we see Moses being different. So, gladly, there are other parts of the Bible. And as we finish up, I want to slow, go slowly through one of these passages to explain what was going on with Moses. And hopefully that we can grab onto that and live that same kind of life to move into the impossible reality of being new creations. So, We'll look at Ephesians chapter 2. Um, this is kind of dense. Uh, Ephesians is, is very densely argued. In fact, if you read it in the original language, at least the first chapter, and maybe even here into chapter 2, are one giant complicated sentence in, in Greek. They like dependent clauses. They can go really long. But this is, this is dense. So uh, let me... Let me slow it down for you. So he says, here's where we start off, and this is the circumstance that we all start off in, and this is where our lives are, that not only do we all have physical death at the end of our stories, but death has a way of working its way backwards into our lives as well. And so he says this, we start off by saying, you, and he's talking to people who are already believers, so he's kind of explaining to them what has happened. And I know for a lot of you guys, I'm explaining we're explaining what has already happened in your life and we can rejoice for that. But he says you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air whose spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. A lot of big words there. So what he's basically saying is we were messed up and our world was messed up that we were broken. is is one of the best ways to put it. That we are we are made good, that human beings are good, but we're broken. Or like I was talking with one person this week, we're like a tool that that is a great tool, but it's the calibration is all off. And so it's no longer working in the way that it was supposed to. And that's what sin and transgressions are. So it's it's not just stuff that we've done, but it's stuff that's been done to us. And the cumulative effect of all of that is that we're off, that we're broken. And it's things that we have done. It's things that we have done to to others that others have done to us. And those things pile up. And it's not just us. He talks about the prince of the power of the air or the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Something like that. It's kind of a big term. I think he's talking about the devil here. Where basically it's not just us, but there are spiritual forces that are fighting against us as well. And every time we're disobedient to the Lord, we're giving space for that opposing power to kind of mess with us. And so what he's saying is, is, if you can remember a time to these folks where things just seemed really messed up, here's why. That all of these different things were piling up on top of each other. That this is, this is how it goes. And then, in case you didn't get, quite get that, let me, he says, let me talk to you a little bit more about the way that we embrace this. That we embrace and contribute to our own brokenness. He says that, you know, we lived among them, people that were still living like this, you know, he says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires. So, there's that part of us that's broken where sin has taken, taken residence that makes us want to do the wrong thing and makes doing the right thing hard. And I think we've all felt that, right? Where it's like, man, I really want to do the right thing. And somehow it's the, that's always uphill. And the wrong thing always feels like I'm walking downhill when I do that. And he's saying, that, that's how it is. And, and so, by nature, we were deserving of wrath. And so, he's trying to paint a picture here of this is, this is where we start out. We were created good, but we're broken. That, and you know how things, when they break in this world, how do they stay? Broken, right? Most of us have, and we know what this is like, especially because as... Um, industrial stuff has gotten better. They don't make things that can be fixed anymore. So most of us have a collection of broken electronics at home that we're waiting for the e-waste day to get rid of because you can't fix them. Or you, you, you have the printer and you take it to the guy and he says, oh, this is a $100 printer. I can fix it for $150 and you're not going to do that. We live in a world of disposable things, and intuitively we know this, that broken things stay broken. They don't get fixed. And we have each of us been broken and each of us have contributed to our own brokenness. And what I want to suggest to you is is the most pernicious aspect of this, of the way that our brokenness builds up, is not in the big failures that we've committed You know, each of us have probably done a couple really bad things along the way. And you think, well that that's bad. But I I think where it really adds up for us is the little micro failures and micro sins that we commit. That probably we are we're the only one that knows it. But you knew that there was a better way to do that, that, there was a better way to talk to that person. You didn't have to tell that small lie to get out of that situation. They don't know that you lied. They're nice people. They trust you. They think you told them the truth. So only you know. But those small sins, those small breaking points, they add up, and they add up, and they add up, and they weigh us down, and they add to the sense that we're broken, and we're going to stay that way, because that's, that's how things work in our world. The world that we live in, when things break, they stay broken. When they decay, when they die out, they stay died out. But the good news of the gospel is when God is at work, that is not the final word, and it's not the final word here. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. This is the good news, and this is the miracle. This is what God was doing with Moses in that space in Exodus 7. And this is what God wants to do in the empty spaces and the corrupt spaces in each of our hearts and each of our lives as well. He wants to replace that empty space with that new life in Christ. He wants to transform us. He wants to remake us. And, and notice the operative words here. There's nothing in this about us trying harder you know, because you know, that's what we think we got to do. Man, I keep screwing up in these small ways, and i just got to stop that. i just got to get a hold of that. Lord, help me handle this. And, um, and I've often found myself praying that. You know, Lord, I'm a little out of control here. Can you give me enough power to handle this myself so I don't have to depend on you anymore? We often will, will do that kind of thing along the way. But this is not about trying harder. This is not about handling your stuff better. This is not, there's no technique here. There's no, if you know these five steps, you're going to be better off. It's receiving from the Lord what he wants to give to us. And notice the sequence in this verse that we see here. The first thing, it's because of his great love for us. You know, if I was writing this, I, as, as I analyze things, I usually see what's wrong really well. And if I, was, if I was Paul and writing this, I probably would have written, because we are so screwed up and because we are so inclined to not handle our lives terribly well, God has to do this. But gladly, it wasn't me writing Ephesians. It was Paul. And he has a better sense of how God works. And notice how he starts. It is because of God's great love for us that God's Love for us is so profound and so foundational to who we are that He's going to help us. It's not that our problems are so great that God needs to be at work in our lives, it's because God's love is so great that He is at work in our lives. It's an important difference. And because of that, He is rich in mercy. That God's mercy is not a response. It's like, wow, these people keep screwing up. I better be merciful or we're not going to get anywhere. God wants to be merciful. It is his first choice. God's mercy is not a response to our brokenness and our sin. God's mercy is an expression of the deepest part of his heart. And God looks for opportunities to extend mercy to his people. And because of that, that's what Moses received on that day. When Moses was changed It was the richness, the greatness of God's love and the richness of God's mercy came into Moses' life and he was a new man. And then from that point on, instead of fighting with the Lord, he did what the Lord asked. And the story was great. He was that new creation. And friends, I want to suggest that that is the same for each of us, that that is what God wants to do. He wants to say to each of us, stop fighting stop arguing, and just receive. Receive my love, receive my mercy, and let me make you alive. Let me make you alive in this new life that you have in Christ. You may have been dead in your transgressions. You may feel like you're stuck. You may feel like you're broken and like that discarded printer in your garage There's no coming back. The Lord says, Let me make you alive. And then he he adds in this part sentence here. He says, It's by grace that you've been saved. You know, because again, it's like, Okay, I get that. Now let me go try to live this out. Let me go try doing this. No, don't do that. It's not your effort that's going to do it. It's not trying harder. It's not trying better. It's like, Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm not, those little things, I'm not going to do those things anymore. That's not it. It's not trying harder. It's not gripping your fists and saying I'm going to go get him. It's opening your hands and saying I give up. And Lord, I'm ready to receive your mercy. I'm ready to receive your love. Adjoa comes back forward, comes back up to finish. Let me just say this again. The Lord wants to do far more than we can imagine. Don't let him be bound by your past experiences. Don't let him be bound by your expectations or your sense of what you think is possible. Let that go.